Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, we thank you for being with us. If you would be opening your Bibles to Isaiah, the 59th chapter, we'll begin there and look at some verses tonight as we consider faith or works or faith through or grace. Let's start all over on that. That's all mixed up. As we talk about grace or faith or grace through faith to be saved. Uh, We've had a wonderful weekend as a congregation. We appreciate Jamie and others that helped organize and lead the men's retreat. It was a tremendous time together. We appreciate our young people. They've been so busy this week helping with the camp up in Western Kentucky camp and and the work that they did and helping that and also serving at a uh, soup line this afternoon and serving in that way, and we appreciate that. Several of our high schoolers came back together for foundations this afternoon, and Jeff Fortner spoke at that and did a tremendous job. And a book that he used some as a reference, and then he is donating this to the library. You may want to check this out. It's Let Us Pray. It's a plea for prayer in our schools, and it's written by William Murray, and he is the son of Madeline Murray O'Hare, and he was the plaintiff uh, in the case that took prayer out of the schools. I believe it was back in the 60s, and so now uh, he's writing and saying, hey, we need to reconsider that, and uh, I'm told that this is a tremendous book, and it will be in our library if you want uh, to make yourself available to that resource. Also, uh, we have mentioned, and there were several questions after last Sunday, about the marriage amendment, which way are we supposed to vote? You know, those things are always confusing. We know what we're for, we just don't know exactly how to vote that. Uh, We are for, yes, we want the marriage uh, to stay as it is presently defined. One man, one woman for life, going back to Genesis 2. And so our our vote for it to stay as it is presently defined uh, would be voting yes. There are yard signs, we have about 20 available and Jeff has picked those up for us. If you want to go back to the simulcast area after services, Jeff will have those available if you want to place those out in your yard. And I want to encourage you to to remember this because this is very important as you're voting. If you vote for governor and do not vote for this amendment, it's like you're voting no. So you would literally be voting in favor of a homosexual agenda if you do not vote for this, but yet you vote for the governor. Uh, It is very important that we simply get the word out that we're clear on what is taking place. Uh, Apathy is dangerous and ignorance is dangerous. And so let's make sure that we're doing what we can do uh, to be wise stewards with the opportunity that God is giving us here and with the wonderful land that we enjoy of America and the many ways that God has blessed us as we've stayed close to Him as a nation Uh, But surely all of us know the Scriptures well enough to know that as nations leave God, God stops protecting them. And uh, and we need to think carefully about our responsibilities and be very wise stewards with the things that God has given us. As we continue our lesson from this morning, and tonight we'll look at still the topic of salvation, but we'll discuss... It from the aspect that is kind of an age-old argument, if you will. Are we saved by grace or are we saved by faith? I love the opening line in Brother Baxter's book here on the chapter that this particular lessons come from today, or at least the topic of these lessons, and especially the one from tonight will come from this. Listen to this if you haven't read this, or think about it again if you have. This is the opening line. 
one of the least recognized and yet one of the most serious problems of our day is an incorrect understanding of what is involved in man's salvation. This is critically important. How true that is. There is so much confusion about what what is required of us in order to be saved. What has God done in order for us to be saved? And there's so much confusion and there's so much that is said of various degrees, of various ways, of various means, that individuals are confused that honestly want to do what's right. They honestly want to serve God. And he goes on in that first paragraph and he says, you know, we can be misinformed or even partially informed about financial matters and a person may lose money, but perhaps not their soul. A person could be misinformed or partially informed about matters of physical health and they might lose their life, but they might not lose their soul. But if a person is partially informed or misinformed about salvation, they will definitely lose their eternal life with God. Friends, we're not talking about something here that's just a kind of important topic. We're talking about something that is of ultimate importance. If we were to ask Jesus tonight, what should I do to be saved? His answer would be very clear. And obviously, His answer would be very important. Tonight, as we think about this, I want to offer something to you that at first you may say, David, that's a strange place to begin. I want to ask you to just think in your mind, what does it mean to be lost? What I find when I study with individuals one-on-one is that I find that a lot of individuals are somewhat confused even about what it is to be lost. And so it's hard to understand what it is to be saved if you really don't know what it is that separates you from God. In other words, before we even read this, let me show you what I'm talking about. And, And then as we go through it, if it doesn't make sense to you now, hopefully it will after we give an explanation. I've studied with many individuals and I say, when were you saved? And they will talk about a sinner's prayer because that's probably the most common way of salvation today. And so they'll talk about a sinner's prayer. And they'll say, that was the time, during that prayer was the time that I was saved. I'll say, okay, and and we'll jot that down on a piece of paper. Then I'll say to them, have you ever been baptized? And they'll say, yes. I'll say, when were you baptized? Oh, a couple of weeks later, a month later, we had a ceremony, we had a service, and, and I was baptized then. And I'll say... What was that baptism for? And you know, some of them actually answer for the remission of sins. Do you see the confusion? And I say to them, well, how were you saved back here if your sins were not remiss here? They don't know. They just know that during that sinner's prayer, they were saved and later on they were baptized and it was for the remission of sins. You see, friends... We have spoken, and I don't mean us, I'm talking about as a religious culture. We have spoken in so many directions about the topic of salvation that people are unclear of even what it is to be lost. 
Let's make sure tonight that we understand some very basic and important things. As we look at Isaiah, the 59th chapter, he gives us a clear guideline of what it is to be lost. In 59 and verse 1, he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is His ear heavy that He cannot hear. Well then, in other words, if God's hand can't reach us, and if His ear can't hear us, what is it that has separated us from God? Notice verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hid His face from you. Spiritual life is when we are one with God. What separates us from God? By the way, death is a separation. And so spiritual death is when we're separated from God. So we ask, what does it mean to be lost? In other words, we could say, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? To be spiritually dead means that sin has separated us from God. And if we choose to do nothing about that sin... God will not reach through the midst of that sin with His hand and save us. God will not hear through that sin and save us if we choose to do nothing about the sin. Or if we choose to do nothing about it, I should say, based on His terms. Keep in mind, He's the only Savior. We must submit to what the Savior says in order to be saved. So as we consider this tonight, and we think about, well, what is it that removes the guilt of that sin... Obviously, we can't save ourselves, or we could be our own Savior. So we definitely have to have God's help. But then the question is, if we need God's grace, is that sufficient without any response from us? And then we begin a discussion of faith. Is it really necessary for our faith to respond to God's saving grace? Now, we can't answer all of this in depth tonight, but we ought to be able to give a pretty... Uh, precise, clear understanding in, in just a brief outline form. If you would, look with me to Ephesians, the second chapter. A, a, a perfect passage to study this from a simple aspect, if you will. In Ephesians, the second chapter, we read verse 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Notice the word grace and faith as we read this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that... Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So as we think about this first phrase here, for by grace you have been saved. Someone says, have you been saved by grace? And someone answers, no. How would you ever explain that? If we're saved, we're definitely saved by grace. Grace is God's part. Grace is what God has done for us that there is no way that we can do for ourselves. When we drop back, I, I like studying this from the book of Romans. And if, if you want right now to be turning back to Romans 5, because the beautiful thing about the book of Romans is that it speaks quite often about faith, and then there are passages that deal heavily in grace. And what he, he does, Paul does here, is he helps give us a balance to the understanding of grace. Friends, it's this simple. If someone speaks of a grace-only doctrine, they did not find that phrase or that teaching in the Scriptures. If someone on the other extreme speaks of a faith-only doctrine, they didn't find that phrase or that teaching in the Scripture. But in the middle, when we understand that grace is absolutely necessary and a response of our Selves through faith is absolutely necessary also. When we blend together the grace and faith, we have a much better understanding. But first, let's think about the grace aspect. In other words, what has God done for us? When we look at the fifth chapter, we could read most of the fifth chapter, but for time's sake, let's drop back and read verse 8, verse 15, verse 18, and verse 21. And as we do this, 
Notice how we find ourselves in a desperate situation and it's always God's gift that offers us hope. For example, in verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, did Christ wait and say, whenever you deserve it, I'll die for you. No. While we were still sinners, also in this passage, we're identified as enemies. We're identified as weak and without strength. In other words, we were poor and pitiful shape and could not even do anything for ourselves. It's in that situation that Jesus died for us. We read about it in verse 15. And notice how he says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Did we deserve this? No. It was a gift and it's a gracious gift. And it has been offered to all mankind. Let's read verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, this is talking about through Jesus' righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. You see what grace did? It resulted in justification. We'll look at that word in just a few minutes. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is death again? Death is that separation from God. What creates that? Sin. Sin reigns in death. Well, how could we ever overcome that sin? The only way we can overcome that sin is the gracious gift of Jesus Christ. And so it's only because of that grace, Jesus being offered, that gracious gift, that we can have the hope of eternal life. In other words, there are several words that we could look at that we, we would call them biblical words. In other words, if we don't understand these words, we miss out on tremendous concepts and teachings. And these three words that I want us to look at tonight quickly, we can't spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to think about these words that they would have absolutely no power without grace. The first word let's think about is drop back a page in your Bible to Romans, the third chapter, and let's talk about redemption for just a moment. And as we think about these words tonight, now we could study these words from many angles, but tonight let's study them especially of how they reflect God's grace. In Romans, the third chapter, and 23, you've read this many times probably, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, again, that's identifying us as sinners. But now notice 24. There's hope for us because of this. Being justified, and that's one of the words we'll look at in just a moment, but notice the next few phrases. We're being justified freely by His grace through the redemption. Now, that's the key word we want to look at right now. Well, where'd that redemption come from? Back up again. Freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, Christ made that wonderful gift of redemption available, and it was by grace. It was a gift. It was a gift that we didn't merit. We didn't deserve it. And when we consider the word redemption, you know, it is, it is our uh, marketplace word. In other words, it's a financial word. It's the idea of purchasing something back. When we think of ourselves as sinners, we've been given over to Satan. And scripturally, it would be described of us being in the bondage of sin. I think about a writing that I'll, I'll mention to you, the author in the book, and then tell you a brief story that just kind of brings this to life. William Wells Brown, the American slave trade, the Liberty Bell of 1848. 
he told several stories. And, and as, as you read, for example, this, this story that I'll share with you, it reminds us of what it's like to be for sale. And it reminds us, you see, in redemption, we couldn't purchase ourselves. We were desperate for someone else to help us. And that's where we find ourselves in sin. And he tells about this man and woman that, that were bought, brought out from the country and they were to be sold at the slave auction house in the city. And the man was the first one to be auctioned and his master bought him and stood him by his side and his wife was to be auctioned next. And as they pushed her up on the block, she was welled up with tears and the husband was standing there crying and he turned to his new master and he said, I beg you, master, please buy her. She's a good hard worker. She's made her last mistress proud. She worked hard for her in the house. She'd work on the outside. She did everything that she wanted her to do. She would be a great help to your house. Please, I beg you, buy her. And he says, I don't have much money. If she goes cheap, maybe I will. And the auction begins. And both of them are streaming with tears as they continue to look only at each other. And finally, after several bids, the master bids on her. But then it's raised again and again, and he stops his bidding, and she's sold. And they both just break down with tears, and he runs to his wife, and he hugs her, and he says to her, you've been a good wife to me, and I guess I'll never see you again. Please live for heaven so that we can spend that time together. What took place that day? Those people in a society that was very unfair and it's embarrassing and a shameful act. But those people found themselves in a situation where they couldn't buy their self. They would have given everything they had to be able to buy themselves and have their own life, but they couldn't do it. They were at the mercy of others. And friends, when we live a life of sin, we find ourselves sold in sin. Satan is our master. And we can even stand on the auction block and we could say, I don't want Satan to be my master. I want something different. But you know what? If Jesus Christ wouldn't have paid the price to become our Redeemer, we would have no hope no matter how desperately we wanted it. And so we must appreciate grace as we think about a wonderful master that purchased us even when we were not worthy of the price that he paid. Now, there are several other passages there. You see on the screen, Matthew, Mark 10 and 45, his life is called a ransom. In other words, it is the purchase price for us. Ephesians 1 and 7 speaks of redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice this, according to the riches of his grace. Why here in this passage does Paul write and talk about redemption and then link it with riches of grace? Because it's a financial word. And he's saying, let me show you how rich the grace of God is. It can purchase you. You see, this man turned to his master and said, buy her. And he said, I don't have enough. How many times have I heard individuals say, you don't understand the sins I've committed. God could never forgive me. Friends, I'm telling you tonight from the word of God that the grace of God is rich enough to purchase anybody there's no one that's done something so horrific that the great master, Jesus Christ, blood cannot purchase you. And what a beautiful thought when we think of grace. But also let's think of justification. Go to the fourth chapter in verse 25. 
In the fourth chapter here of Romans in verse 25, I'm going to back up and read 24, but then you'll have 25 on your screen there. Romans 4, he says, But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in Him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because... In other words, Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And the word justification is a court word. In other words, there's an individual, it's you and I. We're standing on trial. We're found guilty. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6 and 23. But notice this. The gift of eternal life is through Christ Jesus. You see, the gift, the grace. In other words, so we find ourselves standing before the judge and we're condemned because we're sinners and we must pay the price for that sin unless Jesus speaks up and says, wait a minute, I'll be the substitutionary death. I'll pay the price. I'll be executed for the sins of them. And that's why it's justification. Did we deserve it? No, we didn't deserve for Jesus to die in our stead. But yet He did. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful description of grace. Now, notice if you will as we read Romans the 5th chapter and verse 10. We see another word, and it's the word of reconciliation. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son... Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Notice that as he speaks of being reconciled to God. It's a very beautiful word because this word is a word about relationships. We use the word oftentimes in reconciliation speaking of families. Well, have they reconciled their differences? I hear that that there's problems in that marriage. Are they going to be able to reconcile their relationship with each other? Isn't it a beautiful thing that is, as we think about Jesus dying to pay a penalty for us, as we think about Jesus dying to buy us back, there's also some softer words, if you will. In other words, they paint a really pretty picture of love. In other words, where the Lord says, I don't want to buy you back so that you can be a slave for me. He says, I want to buy you back so that you can be a part of my family. I want us to be reconciled. I want to adopt you into my family. Friends, we don't deserve that. But isn't it wonderful that it's offered to us? That's why it's grace. And so when we speak of how are we saved, absolutely, yes, we're saved by grace. We don't deserve the justification, the redemption, the reconciliation, but thank God that the grace of God is offered to us. Now, as we think of this, I'd like for you to think with me again as we go back to the text there of Ephesians, the second chapter. We're going to read the same verse again, verse 8, but this time I want you to notice that second phrase. We read previously, for by grace you have been saved. And we just talked about what it means to be saved by grace. But notice that next phrase as he says, saved through faith. Friends, we can't separate this sentence and just pick one of it and say, well, I only want to talk about faith or, well, I only want to talk about grace. The fact is we're saved through, we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is a system of belief that we have. Someone says, well, I believe that fornication is a sin. Why do you believe that? It's my faith. Where'd your faith come from? Romans 10 and 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. See, we're in the same book here. Romans 
10. There's so much said about faith. There's so much said about grace in the book of Romans. It's a beautiful study. So what's the point here? When we look at all the things that we believe by faith, where's that faith to come from? It's to come from the Word of God. How are we saved? We learn about this grace and the response, man's response to that grace is through faith. It's what God has taught us to do in response. We can put it this simple as as Brother Baxter does in the book. Grace is God's side. Faith is man's side. Grace is what God offered to man. Man's faith is a response to that grace. What a beautiful, simple explanation of this grace and of the faith that we are to have to respond to it. I'd like to show you a couple more passages in Romans to think about our faith. The first one I'd like for us to look at is Romans, the fifth chapter, the passage that we just read from at the beginning just a few minutes ago. In Romans 5, let's read verse 1 and 2. And and even though we read about faith and being justified in verse 1, I want you to especially notice how the faith and grace are linked together in verse 2. We're in Romans 5, 1 and 2. And by the way, there's not a slide for this one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Isn't that a beautiful explanation of how faith and grace work together? I want to read that phrase again. We have access by faith into this grace. Grace has to have a gateway. Grace has to have an entrance. It's offered to all men. Now the question is, will you respond to God's grace? It's offered to all of us. And we have to decide if our faith is going to respond and enter through that access, that gateway to receive God's grace. The book of Romans opens and closes. Look back at the first chapter The first chapter in verse 5. Notice how faith is tied with the word obedience. You see, when we think about faith, it's not just an intellectual thought. Belief can be described as just an intellectual understanding. But the belief that we read about in the Scriptures and the faith that we read about in the Scriptures is a mental acceptance plus an active commitment of one's life. In other words, the active commitment of one's life is why over and over in the Scriptures when we read about faith, it speaks about obedience. In other words, it's not just intellect alone, it's obeying what we know and understand that is the will of God. And that's when it becomes faith. We're in the first chapter in verse 5. Notice how he opens up the book of Romans, verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for His name. Notice how he closes the book. Go to Romans, the 16th chapter. I'm going to read verse 26 and notice the second half of verse 26. He says, But now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. So he speaks of the Scriptures, and then he says and speaks of the necessity of having an obedient faith. A faith that believes and has a life that is following or committed 
to that system of beliefs. I'd like to close this lesson, if you would, by going to Titus, the second chapter. Titus, the second chapter. Let's read verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. And I want you to notice, now, some of you will have seen this before, and you'll say, oh, yeah. And some of you will have never noticed this phrase before. There's a phrase in here that says, teaches us. Now, as we read this, I want you to ask yourself, what is the Scripture saying here that teaches us? In other words, if you're taught something, there has to be an instructor. What is the instructor that teaches us here? Let's read verse 11, 12 and following. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now see, it's, it's available to all mankind. But not all men are going to uh, pass through the gateway. They're not going to respond to it. They're not going by faith to reach out. But notice this. Teaching us... That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Now, He spoke of the need for us to turn away from the ungodly and negative things. He also spoke from a a positive sense for us to live soberly, righteously, and godly. He also spoke of the need for us to live by hope. In other words, looking for the second coming of Jesus, being ready for that. He also spoke of us being a special people. We're set apart from the world and we're involved in good works. So now think about that. He said, I want you to avoid the the sinful things. I want you to do the righteous things. I want you to look for heaven, for the coming of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be set apart from the world. What taught us all that? Do you notice when you tie verse 11 and 12 together? He says, it's grace that teaches you that. Friends, when someone says that that grace and faith are not linked together, listen, all through the Scriptures, they're linked in the same verses and in the same paragraphs. We have to get a knife out and butcher the Word of God to say that grace is not linked to faith. Grace is offered to all mankind. And it's through faith that man responds to that grace. What a beautiful, beautiful opportunity God gives us to say, I loved you so much, I gave my only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish. You see, there's a response, but have everlasting life. What is that belief that we have to have? It's a faith that is based upon the intellect, but then commits that to our life. Tonight, if you're not saved, do you realize that there is a God who loved you so much He gave His Son so that you could be justified, redeemed, and reconciled? He wants you in His family. But it's our responsibility to respond to that. God's never forced anyone to serve Him. He's never twisted anyone's arm to obey His Son. But He's done everything He could do to encourage us to follow the roadmap of faith. If you've never been baptized into Christ, or if you have and strayed away, please, by hope, look to that day of, of judgment. Make sure that before we leave here tonight, we understand that there's a gracious, merciful, forgiving God that believes in you. He believes you can make it. He believes you're worth it.
And it may be that you've given up and others have given up on you. But I promise you from the Word of God, God has not given up on you. If we can